In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. It's propitious that on a Sunday after an election, both of our lessons make reference to the way we should look at temporal governments. In the epistle, St. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven, from whence we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This statement contains a couple of subtle digs at the politics of his day. The city of Philippi, to which he was writing, was a Roman colony full of uh, retired and proud Roman soldiers. There would have been an air of Roman patriotism in the city. St. Paul's emphasis on our heavenly citizenship is a caution against too great an enthusiasm for the current order. Caesar also was given the title Savior of the World because of the peace he had brought to the Roman Empire. When St. Paul says that we should look for the Savior to come, he is reminding us of the limits of political and military salvation. While St. Paul was confronting Roman patriotism, Jesus was speaking to an audience that would have been naturally hostile to Caesar. Those who came to test him meant to create for him a kind of dilemma. If he said it was lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, his Jewish audience would uh, turn away from him, thinking he was sort of giving legitimacy to the Roman rule. If he said it wasn't lawful to pay taxes, he would be in serious risk of arrest as a political agitator. His answer put things in perspective. The coin bore Caesar's image and likeness and therefore might rightly be given to Caesar. But since we are made in the image and likeness of God, we should offer worship and service only to him. Thus, when Caesar demanded worship of the early Christians, they chose martyrdom instead. When St. Paul spoke of heavenly citizenship, he wasn't merely offering a spiritualized descent to Roman rule or speaking uh, of some future existence in a place called heaven. He was speaking of an actual kingdom that exists right now. This kingdom is ruled over by the Lord Jesus, who was crowned as king in the ascension and currently rules over the creation. We became citizens of this kingdom in baptism, and we have actual duties as citizens to worship, to obey the king, to work and pray and give for the spread of this actual kingdom. Moreover, our heavenly citizenship is not something added on top of or secondary to our connection to this world. We do not hold a dual citizenship in the city of God and the city of man. Rather, the Bible describes us as strangers and pilgrims, as resident aliens, in the world. 
To be sure, the Bible exhorts heavenly citizens to be model resident aliens in the city of man. For example, St. Peter writes, quote, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free and not using your liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We are called to submission and obedience to secular authority because we are ambassadors in this world for the kingdom of God. We are to represent our homeland well as a matter of foreign policy. There are two particular challenges for us as we attempt to adopt and live out this framework, this biblical framework in our country. First, America has historically been a friendly place for Christians. It's hard to feel like a stranger and a pilgrim when we feel so much at home. Second, the sense of being at home is slowly declining. Many Christians feel a sense of angst and even anger as they try to figure out how to get back to where we once were. One thing seems obvious, America is not going back to where it once was for the simple reason that Americans are less profoundly Christian than they once were. Some three quarters of us still identify ourselves as Christians, but this shared faith is highly diluted and highly individualized. The former national consensus about the moral order of the universe has given way to a general sense that all should be free to do as they please so long as no one appears to be harmed by the actions. Deists and Baptists of the colonial era had more in common than many Christians have today. There is opportunity in this change of circumstance to more fully embrace the biblical model. It is increasingly evident that we are indeed, like Abraham, strangers and pilgrims, resident aliens in the world. The church has a greater opportunity to fulfill its vocation when it is not at home in the world and thus sets its sights more clearly on the world to come. This is precisely what St. Paul is saying in the epistle. We are not citizens of the city of man waiting for Caesar to save us. We are citizens of heaven waiting for the king to come. When vibrant and committed Christian faith declines, eternal goals tend to be replaced 
by temporal ones. Thus, for the last generation, cutting-edge Christianity has been eager to show how the kingdom of God can have a positive, practical impact in this world. The result has largely been the Christian faith no longer has any impact at all. Or it has resulted in the appearance that Christian faith has failed because it did not produce some desired temporal result. Christian renewal requires that the Christian hope, the coming of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come be restored as the primary goal of the Christian life. And it requires that we begin to look at this life in this world in terms of how it serves the goal of eternal life. As C.S. Lewis wrote, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in, aim at earth and you will get neither. Living life now in the light of eternity requires a serious commitment to the life of prayer. This is not just a commitment to pray for things. It is a commitment to live out the reality of our status as heavenly citizens. Ephesians tells us we have been raised up and made to sit in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. In Christ, we are restored to our vocation as kings and priests of the creation. And we exercise this through prayer. Through prayer, we offer the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. And through prayer, we rule with Christ over the world. The practice of prayer has suffered greatly from the focus on time instead of eternity. People are always praying for short-term practical benefits rather than eternal salvation, progress in virtue, and the larger purposes of the kingdom of God. Consequently, there are many small miracles spoken of, but not so much evident holiness and power in the church. People don't commit themselves to the life of prayer because it seems to have no practical benefit. It gets in the way of doing things. This is precisely the problem. When eternity becomes the servant of time, the whole framework of prayer is turned upside down. Christian prayer is not the way to get things done in time. Christian prayer is the way that time is continually lifted up into eternity. It is the way we learn to live in the present moment in the full light of the eternal victory. When we focus on the temporal, we get caught up in all the false urgencies and emergencies of the kingdom of man. And we get anxious, fearful, and angry. Conversely, when we 
lift up our hearts to the Lord, when we continually ascend into heaven and take our place among the elect of God, when we take all of life and offer it to God in Christ, things begin to change. First, we become new people, and we look at life in a new way. And strangely, we begin to actually have a greater impact on life in the world. Prayer gives us new power because it aligns our goals and purposes with the will and purposes of God. One thing we learn through prayer is that God's time horizon is different than our own. God is not in a hurry. Our crises are not his crises. Our deadlines are not his deadlines. With the Lord, a thousand years is like one day, and one day is like a thousand years. He is doing what he is doing, and he always accomplishes his will. Prayer gets us on board with him, and it never works the other way around. Think of it this way. The church gathers around the altar on the Lord's day as the outpost on earth of the kingdom of God to exercise its priestly and kingly vocation. It has continued to do this for 2,000 years through the rise and fall of various editions of the city of man, through the fall of Jerusalem and the Roman Empire, through periods of intense persecution and relative peace, through the dark ages and times of human flourishing, through the emergence and overthrow of various enemies of God. Through all of this, Jesus has remained Lord of the creation, and through all of this, the church has reigned with him through prayer, enduring faithfully through persecution, offering praise and thanksgiving for God's blessings, interceding for justice and for various needs of the world. And through all of this, the church is constantly reminded, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. As we habitually enter into God's presence through prayer, we learn to experience God's joy and God's peace. We learned that while God is very concerned about the world, he is not worrying about it. He is slowly but surely accomplishing his purposes as we move with consistent, consistent progress towards his final victory over death. Through prayer, we discover that it is not God's will for us to be anxious, fearful, or angry. We learn that God wants us to pray faithfully for God's will to be done in the world, to do the particular good that God calls each of us to do, and to trust him for the results that he will accomplish in his good time. 
for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be like his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.